Genesis 25 is where we'll begin. The title for this lesson is The First Shall Be Last. Now, I came up with a lot of different title options. Some of them I've written on the board, but I decided that The First Shall Be Last was the most biblical. But, you know, in my flesh, I really liked uh, Twin Troubles, Double Troubles, Soup Swap, Beans for the Birthright. And most of all, you'll understand this when we get into it, The Foolhardy Cookbook for Fake Food by Rebecca, Mrs. Isaac, beginning with chapter 25. The first 10 verses of chapter 25 present us with a brief account of the last 35 years of Abraham's life, the last 35 years, just in 10 verses. Uh, He lived a very full life. He was 175 years old when he died, and I would say that's a pretty full life, wouldn't you? After listing his six sons by way of his second wife, you know, Sarah had died. Remember, we talked about that last time. Sarah had died and he buried her in the cave of Machpelah, the only piece of property he ever owned. He bought that cave to bury his beloved wife. And then he got a wife for Isaac and uh, he took Rebecca into his mother's tent and she comforted him. Well, then he remarried Abraham remarried about 140 years old but uh he proceeded to have six sons and that probably includes daughters they're just not listed through keturah his second wife and they are listed their names are listed for us and then we have in verse 8 the genesis obituary of abraham he has another obituary in Hebrews chapter 11, but this is his Genesis obituary, and it tells us that he died in a good old age, a good old age, an old man full of years. So his life was good, his life was long, and his life was full, and the Hebrew word for full means satisfying. That's the way to go, isn't it? Like her father-in-law lived to be 90 years old, and he lived a good, long, full life. Most importantly, he was satisfied because he knew the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what really matters. And Abraham, you know, at 175, I am sure he was ready. He was ready for life's next dimension, its new dimension, its fullest dimension in the afterlife. So he finished his course well, and that's not that easy to do. Do you think it's easier to begin your walk with the Lord well or to end well? Abraham did did both. He began well. I mean, yeah, you know, he left Ur of the Chaldees to go where he didn't know he was going, and he had a few bumps on the way. He kind of did take his dad along with and his nephew and And he stayed in Haran for a while. But overall, you know, he had a lot of tests in his life, as we all do. And I would say that overall, his GPA was way up there. He got a lot of A's, didn't he? So he really really did begin and end well. He was faithful, fruitful, and full to the very end. Now, long before his death, if you remember back in chapter 15... Verse 15, the Lord had prophesied to Abraham, his friend, and he had told him that he would die in a good old age. He kept his word, didn't he? He also told him that he would die in peace. Now, that's very important. Abraham 
died in peace. Why did he die in peace? You know, not everybody dies in peace. I'd say most of the world does not die in peace. Abraham died in peace because he made his peace with God, didn't he? Actually, we have the verse. <laughs> it was in Genesis fifteen six, where it says he was justified by faith because he put his faith in God, God's word, and specifically God's word about who? The seed of the woman, the promised savior. And so he was able to die in peace. Most people don't. Uh, most people want to. And some are fooled that they are, but they aren't. You know, in Numbers chapter 23, you know that prophet for prophet? I always call him that. Dr. J. Vernon McGee got me on that because he was a prophet for prophet. Balaam, the one who talked talk to his donkey. No, his donkey talked to him. And I think he did answer. I mean, which is worse, for your donkey to talk to you or you to answer? <laughs> But he, he cried out at the end of his life. He cried out in anguish because he wanted to die the, the death of the righteous. But he had neglected to do one very important thing. In order to die the death of the righteous, you have to live the life of the righteous. So with his final breath, Abraham, verse 8 says, was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his people. Now that is the fr a phrase that's used often in the Old Testament, particularly. I don't know if it's used in the New Testament, but this is the first time it's ever used. And it's used with regard to the man who is called the father of us all, the father of all believers. And it speaks not of his body being gathered to his people because most of his people were buried somewhere else. A lot of them were buried up in Haran or in Ur of the Chaldees. The only one he was buried with was his wife, Sarah. So it's not speaking about his body being gathered to his people. It's not speaking about um, also his soul being gathered with his people, meaning his ancestors, because most of the souls of his ancestors who had died were unsaved. They were pagan worshipers. So what does it speak about? It speaks about his soul being gathered to his people, previously deceased people of faith, like him. It speaks of the truth of the afterlife, doesn't it, right there? So the cave of Machpelah in Hebron, where he was buried alongside of his beloved Sarah, also became the burial place of Isaac and his wife Rebecca and Jacob and his wife Leah, all, all the patriarchs of the faith and the matriarchs, except one is missing, Rachel. What happened to Rachel? Why isn't she buried there? Well, if you remember, she died giving birth to Benjamin and it was outside of Bethlehem, and therefore she was buried right outside of Bethlehem. There, I saw, I've seen her tomb. So she is not buried in Machpelah, the cave there. But the rest of them all were. So it's interesting to me, you know, how I love comparisons and contrasts, to think about the fact that the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, ends with a full tomb Whereas the first books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, end with what kind of a tomb? Amen. Amen. An empty tomb. 
And because of that empty tomb, all those who place their faith in the one whose body once laid there, their tombs will also one day be empty, will they not? Amen. That's a great contrast. Well, now when Abraham died, his son Isaac, if Abraham died at 175, how old was Isaac? Very good. Yeah, because remember, Abraham was 100 when he had him. So when he died, his son was 75. And his twin grandsons, who we'll be talking about today, Esau and Jacob, were 15 years old when their grandfather died. That means that the record of Abraham's death here in chapter 25 is not in chronological order. He did not die at this point, really, in the, in the, uh, the, the truth, the reality of the Genesis narrative. But it appears here, Moses was inspired to put it here, because there is now a transition from the first patriarch of the faith, Abraham, to the second patriarch of the faith, Isaac. You see, with Isaac's marriage to Rebekah, the focus now turns to Isaac. Briefly, you know, there's less said about Isaac than any of the other patriarchs. There's a lot about Abraham. There's a whole lot about Jacob. Jacob is not a picture of Christ, but he is a typological picture of something else. Anyone want to guess? Very good. You get an A+. Plus. His name was changed to Israel. That's kind of it. <laughs> And I won't be able to really explain that until we finish, probably on our last day in May. I'll show you how amazingly his life is a picture of the history of Israel. But we have to kind of go through his life so we set the stage for it. So there is a purpose for going through the life of Jacob. So there's a lot of information about Abraham, a lot about Jacob, and a lot about Joseph, of course. So Isaac really only has one chapter exclusively to himself. He's the most briefly talked about. So we're moving on anyhow to Isaac. And that's why also if you look at verses 12 to 18, this is why the record of Ishmael's descendants are given here in this chapter as well as Ishmael's death. It's found in in this chapter. Although that too is out of sequence. I think Ishmael did not die until his nephews were like 65 years old. So he didn't die here in chapter 25. But what the Lord is doing or what the Spirit is doing through Moses is um, closing out the account of Abraham. You know, okay, that's the end of Abraham. And then he's closing out all about Ishmael, the descendants of Ishmael, so that the transition of the messianic line exclusively through um, Isaac would then proceed unhindered. So he taught, finishes up with Abraham. He finishes up with Ishmael. Now let's just think you know, solely on the messianic lineage and talk about Isaac. So you get why this is out of sequence? And what I found is interesting. interesting. Do you remember a couple weeks ago I asked you, in one of your homework questions, if you thought Ishmael was saved or not? Well, I found out we can be sure 
Because look at verse 17. It says, just like Abraham, that Ishmael was what? Gathered unto his people. That phrase is only used in the Bible about saved people. He was saved. And you know the descendants of Ishmael in the end, you know, in eschatology, in the prophetic word of God about their descendants. You know, he was, there was a lot of Egypt. You know, his mother was Egypt and he married an Egyptian, so they're mixed with. But they end up well, just like Ishmael. He was gathered to his people as well. So even though he didn't share in the physical aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, he did get to share in its spiritual blessings. Amen. Good. So then with Genesis 25, verse 19, the narrative transitions from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah. And the first thing that we learn about their life together, this romantic couple, is that Sarah was barren. Do you know that the matriarchs were all barren? Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Leah wasn't, you know, she wasn't supposed to be Jacob's wife. Yeah, read it. There it is, verse 21. Rebecca was barren. Do you think there's a reason for that? Oh, yeah, you know, there's a reason for everything, isn't there? Yeah. We're going to answer that one of these days. Why were all the matriarchs of the faith barren? At least those first three. There's a spiritual reason. So she's barren, okay? But she's married to the right guy. Because if ever there was a man who believed that his wife's barrenness was not going to be a, a lasting problem, it was Isaac. I mean, after all, he was a living testimony to the fact that nothing is impossible with the Lord, right? Nothing is too wonderful for the Lord because his mother was not only barren all her married life, but she was postmenopausal, and yet there he is. Furthermore, what did he know? What did Isaac know about himself? He was the son of promise. He was the one through whom the Messiah would come. He knew that. Therefore, he knew for God to keep his word that he had to have a son, didn't he? He knew that. And so with great confidence, he intercedes on behalf of his wife. He entreats the Lord on behalf of Rebecca that she would conceive. And he patiently waited on God. And indeed, verse 21, she did conceive. Now look at that. It says, and Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord was entreated of him and Rebekah, his wife, was conceived. Now, if you just read that verse, you'd say, okay, big deal. She was barren and then she conceived. But what we don't learn here is that there was 20 years between that. She was barren for 20 years. That's double the time that Sarah was barren without a child before she got impatient and said, well, let's do something about it. And they, they used Hagar to have Ishmael. They only waited 10 years from the time God gave them a promise that, you know, Abraham would be the father of multitudes. His descendants would be like the stars of the sky. 
waited 10 years. Well, Rebecca and Isaac waited double that time. Double, two decades they waited. And you see, Isaac had learned from his parents the mistake of taking matters into your own hands. So he, fortunately, did not repeat the mistake of his parents. And he, he just waited on the Lord. And Rebecca also waited on the Lord. And that was a good thing. And that's about the end of the good things that this couple does. Well, <clears throat> finally, 20 years, she gets pregnant. And uh, it's not too long into her pregnancy when she has the distinct sensation of a war in her womb. And she's got, you know, she'd never been pregnant before, but she knows something is not quite normal in there. I mean, you know, all this bumping and moving around. And, and so she goes to all the other women who have had children and they're feeling, so yeah, something's something really going on in there. And so she asks the Lord about it. And for the very first time, she has a direct response from the Lord. Never before. I mean, this is the one and only time she directly hears from the Lord. He answers her question by telling her that the womb wrestling match was because there were two manner of people inside of her. Notice he didn't say two manner of fetuses. Two manner of what? People. You want to show somebody that abortion is unbiblical? And you say, oh, what passage should I turn to? Well, how about this one? Two manner of people. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, what kind of people they're going to be. Does he know about the babies in the womb before they're born? Of course he does. Does he even know about their descendants? Yes, he does, because he says these two manner of people, which means, by the way, that she's having twins. She also really finds out that they're boys because they're going to father two different nations. So she finds out a lot here. But he also, not only does he know about the people in the womb who are people, but he knows about their descendants because he says they're going to father two different nations. Well, it turns out that Esau, firstborn, would father the nation of the Edomites. We'll talk about where that name came from in a minute. And then Jacob, as you know, would father what nation? Israel. He'd become the father of, of Israel. Those two nations the Edomites and the Israelites continued their long history of womb wrestling, except it's outside the womb, long history of struggles between those two people. And guess what? It's ongoing today. Biblical scholars, now it's hard to keep track of people when they marry, but Esau intermarried with Hittites, Canaanite women, and also the daughter of Ishmael. So it's all mixed up. But the Ones who do those kind of things say that the Palestinians are descendants of Esau. Ongoing struggle today between the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Jacob. The Lord then told Rebekah that one people, one of those nations from one of those sons would be stronger than the other. And here's the big news. The first shall be last where the title comes from he tells her that the elder the first one born would actually serve the younger remember how we talked about that Isaac and Rebecca are pictures types of Christ and the church that continues a little bit longer and then it ends but it continues here in the twin troubles 
The twin troubles are typologically significant in connection with picturing Christ and his church. You see, the problem of being barren, the problem of fruitlessness was Rebecca's problem, wasn't it? The problem was not in Isaac. Just as any failure to bring forth fruit in us as members of the church or in the church itself, any failure to produce fruit is never the fault of Christ. The problem is in us, in the church. The change needed to occur in Rebecca before new life could be reproduced. So Isaac, you see, just like the Lord Jesus Christ with his church, Isaac carried on an intercessory ministry for her on her behalf. Isn't that what he's doing for us today? He's our great intercessor. Apart from Isaac, Rebecca could do nothing to bear fruit, could she? Just like apart from Christ, you know, John 15, the true vine, apart from him, what can we do? Absolutely big zero, nothing. Now, when Rebecca did bear fruit, she became aware almost immediately of a battle waging within her. She learned from the word of God, the Lord, as we learn from the word of God, what was going on. What's going on? I'm, I have this battle inside of me. You know, you're a new Christian. What's going on here? She learned from the word of God that there were two very different natures inside of her warring with one another. Every believer, every member of the church experiences this ongoing struggle between our old nature, the flesh, our Esau, and our new nature, the spirit represented by by Jacob. Now, since we are all born in sin, our physical birth, we're born in sin because we inherit the Adamic sin nature. Therefore, our old nature is always firstborn, Esau. The new nature comes only with the second birth. Not everybody has a second birth. It only comes with our spiritual birth. When we believe in Christ and we're born from above, we're born again by the Holy Spirit. Esau, the firstborn, was ruled by his old nature, completely ruled by his flesh. Whereas Jacob genuinely desired the things of God. He was the spiritual man. Sometimes you wouldn't believe it, but he was. (laughs) He desired the things of God. He just went about trying to obtain them the wrong way. He tried to obtain spiritual things his way and on his time schedule. You see, like Jacob, even when we are second born, we tend to hold tightly to the heel of our non-identical twin, our Esau, our old nature. Isn't that all a beautiful picture? There's so much in this. But here's the good news. 
The good news is that the elder will serve the younger. The elder will serve the younger. The struggle between our old nature and the new nature will be won by the younger, by the new nature. Why is that? Well, because greater is he who is in you, us, the spirit, than he who is in the world. You see, the kingdom of God is far stronger and superior to the kingdom of Satan. So the kingdom of God will always win. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, I think it's just, I get so excited about things like this. This is typology, really. So, um, you know, the world today, if you haven't noticed, the world mocks and it scorns and it now even hates, even in America, hates the Christian worldview. They're trying to blot it out. You know, we're ignorant and all that kind of stuff, and we're dumb, and they even hate us, really. A lot of the world hates us. Um, But one day, one day, every knee will bow before Jesus Christ, and there will be no other worldview than the Christian worldview. In fact, I call it a there one day will be a, a Christ-centered universe view. That's what it'll be. Christ-centered universe view. And all God's people said, amen. amen, and I can't wait for that. Well, the twin turmoil, there's another name, twin turmoil. <laughs> it didn't just occur before their births in the womb. It occurred at the time of their births. Esau was born just a matter of seconds, I guess, before Jacob. And as we just talked about little Jacob, he emerged with his tiny little hand firmly gripping his brother's heel as if he's trying to say, you can't win, you can't win, I'm going to pull you back in through the birth canal. I'm going to get out of here first, you know. It's cute. He had no idea what he was doing, but the Lord did, you know, he Isn't it interesting, even things that happen like that or at birth, I think some of the first things that my babies did, and then I look at their lives now, and I see that was like a little message of what kind of person they're going to (laughs) be. But so he emerged second, Jacob did. Um, And for that reason, because of his little birth action, he was named by his parents, uh, Yaakob. Yaakob, I guess I was trying to put two A's, because it's got two A's in it, but Yaakob. And that comes from two Hebrew words. One is akeb, which means heel, and the other is akab, which means to follow closely on the heel of his brother. So that's where his name Jacob came from. His birth was really an appropriate characterization of the rest of his life, almost. Because Jacob's life could be summarized by three major struggles. First struggle we're going to talk about today was with him and Esau. It's the Jacob-Esau wrestling match. (laughs) Then the second phase is going to be the Jacob-Laban wrestling match. And the third one, can anybody guess? The Jacob 
God wrestling match. That's when he wrestles all night long with the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Christ. So that's Jacob's life right there. Finally, he does fully surrender. Well, Esau was the firstborn, and he is described, if you look at verse 25, he is described (laughs) as being... (laughs) How'd you like to give birth to this one? Red all over like a hairy garment. (laughs) (laughs) now and so guess what they named him harry (laughs) but it's not h-a-r-r-y it's h-a-i-r-y esau means harry and later on when he took in chapter 36 of genesis it talks about the edomites um, when he took his descendants and they moved to the area South of the Dead Sea, between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba is where Edom, it's like today, southern Jordan, all right? Petra is in that area. Uh, He moved them there, and that's where Mount Seir is. Well, Seir comes from the same Hebrew word as Esau, and so literally, it's Mount Harry. And because he was red, his hair obviously was red, um, because it says so, his nickname became Edom, which in Hebrew means red. So a lot of redheads. My daughter-in-law is redheaded, and, you know, a lot of people say, hey, red, you know. So that became his his nickname, and his descendants, therefore, were the Redites. Really, that's what Edomites mean. And the Edomites, the Redites, moved... (laughs) to Mount Harry. (laughs) Well, his hairiness depicts the natural man's... He was a natural man, okay? He was born in the flesh and he stayed that way his whole life. It depicts the natural man's animalistic behavior, you know, because he was like an animal covered with hair. The color red associated him with the reddish brown color of of the clay, you know, out of which man was formed. Picturing the Adamics in nature. Man was born out of the dirt of the earth. You know, Adam and Edom come from the same word. And they both speak of the earth. They're both connected with the earth. Well, now some have suggested that Satan attempted to use Esau even in the womb to do fatal damage to Jacob. They're in there wrestling, and some suggest that Satan is trying to destroy Jacob even in the womb, you know, because that struggling could have resulted in umbilical cord strangulation, couldn't it, on the part of either one of them. But I get the feeling from the description of Esau that he was probably bigger than Jacob. Now, we know that Satan's, he, he, he did have a continuous intention to destroy the messianic line in any way that he could. And later on in this chapter, not this chapter, but in this lesson this morning, we're going to see that Esau's hatred for Jacob is such that what does he want to do to him? He wants to murder him, he wants to annihilate, just like today his descendants still do. They still want to murder and get rid of Jacob, his descendants. Sadly, now we find out that um, this is where the end of the typology 
of uh, Isaac representing Christ ends. You know, typologies, you can't carry them through to the very end. There's only little bits and pieces that were of Christ, but now it ends <laughs> from here on. Isaac and Rebekah showed favoritism, each one toward a different son. Isaac loved which son? Esau. Esau. It says Isaac loved Esau, whereas Rebekah loved Jacob. That's in verse 28, if you want to look at it. Is parental favoritism a good thing or a bad thing? Always a bad thing. Always a bad thing. Don't ever, ever show favoritism toward one of your children over the other or one of your grandchildren even over the other. Love them all. You know, the Lord just keeps expanding the heart. Just love them all the same. And if you really don't, don't tell them that. (laughs) Uh, But there was greater wrong on the part of Isaac. It is harder to love the one that goes against the Lord, you know, but he didn't. He favored, he favored Esau. And Hebrews 12 verse 16 tells us this, this, this is awful. It tells us that Esau was a fornicator and a profane man. He was a cunning hunter And he loved the outdoors, and there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. But usually when the scripture talks about someone being a cunning hunter, remember Nimrod? It usually speaks about the fact that they also like to kind of be at war with men, not just killing deer and animals out there. He was a cunning hunter. Um, He was also a hedonist. You know what a hedonist is? Eat, drink, and be merry. You know, live for today. Live for your flesh. Feed the flesh. That's what he was. Live for the here and now. Didn't care about the future. Jacob was ruled by his spiritual ambitions. Esau was ruled by his physical appetites and his lusts. And based what we learn uh, in in this, these chapters about these unidentical twins, we could say that Jacob was a man of the home, the hearth, and the herds. He liked to go out and be with the sheep and the goats, okay? Whereas Esau was a hunter and a hedonist. The differing values of these two sons is given to us, is displayed to us in their very first recorded conversation. And this is in verse 30. Esau, okay, he's been out somewhere, obviously, hunting, out in the field, hunting. And he comes in from, you know, comes to the home from his hunting expedition, and he's absolutely starving to death, so he says. And he gets a whiff of Jacob's. I'm sure Jacob learned how to cook from his mama, Rebecca, because she's got this foolhardy cookbook that she, you know, made. And so he learned how to make savory red bean soup, (laughs) lentil soup. And Esau gets a whiff of that. He's starving. And what does he say? What are his very first words? Feed me. (laughs) Feed me for I am faint. He had a physical need. And all he could think about at that point was filling it. I have a need. I need to fill it physical need you know so his belly ruled over his brain (laughs) you can always get a man that way (laughs) 
No, take that out of the tape. <laughs> well, what was Jacob's response to that? What were her, his first words? Sell me. Now, at this point, they're both kind of all about me, aren't they? <laughs> Feed me, sell me. He says, sell me this day thy birthright. What did Jacob want? What did he want? Tell me. He wanted the firstborn birthright. Why did he want the firstborn birthright? Well, because it included the covenant blessings of God. The Abrahamic covenant blessings that went to his dad and then down to Esau, the firstborn. But he wanted them. Why? Because he believed in God and he, he wanted to be the one to carry on the messianic lineage. That's a good thing. He had a good motive here. He did, just went about it the wrong way. He, his method wasn't too great. Now, um, he probably had pre-planned this. Maybe he had tried this before and it hadn't worked. But uh, this looks like it's premeditated. And he had probably waited for a long time for an opportunity to bargain with Esau for the birthright. So here it was, the opportunity. His brother's starving. He smells the soup. He wants it. And uh, so he strikes while the iron is hot. Esau is salivating. And he readily, just like that, accepted the beans for the birthright bargain. (laughs) And exaggerating that he's at the point of death, he says this in verse 32. What profit shall this birthright do to me? What a flippant attitude about his birthright. You know, it's not just that he's firstborn. It's just, you know, it's that it's all about God. And this is a very important first uh, birthright. This is the messianic lineage we're talking about here. And he says, what profit is it to me? You know, if I if I drop over dead because I don't get this red bean soup. What the more accurate question is the one that Jesus asked years later in Mark 8. What did he ask? What shall it for what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Jacob would repeatedly we will find this out or if especially if you get the book, you'll find out that he repeatedly resorted to acting in self-sufficient ways to gain what he wanted. He would tempt, he would bargain, he would scheme, he would connive, he would deceive, he would lie, he would wrestle. All of that to get what the Lord already intended to give him. Isn't that silly? The Lord gave a prophecy to his mother. He was going to get all this anyway. He was a little impatient to get it, wasn't he? And he thought, you know, he had to, he had to get it himself. But he would learn. <clears throat> Take him a long time, but he would learn through a lot of difficult trials, and he would learn through Laban, his uncle, um, that his struggles with others were really the result of a struggle within himself. Isn't that always true? When we're struggling with other people, a lot of it is because of us. Uh, he was struggling about doing things his way and on his time schedule rather than waiting on God and surrendering to his ways and his timing. That's a big problem Christians have. All of us have that problem. We want it and we want it now. And if we don't get it now, we'll try to do it our way. So we do get it now. And yet, in spite of all of his weaknesses, Jacob was rightly focused on spiritual matters. 
his motive in the soup swap was good. It was just his method was wrong because he ran ahead of God. Okay? But whatever you think of conniving Jacob, whatever you think of him, this is very important. This might be the most important thing I say today in light of the world we live in today in the 21st century. Whatever you think of Jacob. Now, there's more meaning to what I'm saying, okay? Jacob, Israel, Esau, Edom, Palestinians. Get the bigger picture, okay? Whatever you think of Jacob, don't feel sorry for Esau. Do not feel sorry for Esau. He was not a victim of circumstances. It says in verse 34 that he despised his birthright. He could care less about God and his word, his promise of a coming savior. He despised all of that. Both brothers knew what they wanted, didn't they? They knew what they wanted, and they both got what they wanted. Jacob got the birthright. Esau got the beans. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I'd rather have the birthright than the beans. But who's, you know... Most of the world today, and let me include this, most of Christendom today feels sorry for Esau. Mm-hmm. Just turn on the news. Who's always the victims? The Palestinians. Who's always the bad guy? Israel, Jacob's descendants. Don't feel sorry for Esau. If you're really undecided about this and you say, oh, yeah, but he just, you know, you give some little excuses for him. Remember this. If the Bible is your final authority for faith and practice and modern times, what's going on today, remember this. The Bible strongly condemns Esau. Strongly. I don't know of any harsher words that God could have for Esau, because in Malachi, he says, I hate Esau. He's not talking about the man. He's talking about his descendants. That's pretty strong, isn't it? It doesn't have a lot of good. It says nothing good about him. He despised everything godly. He was profane. He was a fornicator. But the Bible, on the other hand, never has a single word of condemnation toward Jacob. Not one Now, he wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But God affiliates his name with Jacob over, I think, 22 times. The God of Jacob. So whose side are you going to take? It's pretty clear to me. Pretty clear to me. Israel. Esau lived for the here and now. His willingness to so easily forfeit his birthright for beans and then seal the deal with an oath, you know, Jacob says, well, give me a vow right now. He does that. That shows how irresponsible and spiritually insensitive Esau was. God was not a priority for him at all. And here's the thing. He never, ever evidenced any repentance in what he had done here or later on. 
No repentance. Like Judas, it says in verse 34 that he ate and drank and he went his way. His way. It says the same thing about Judas. Well, chapter 26, moving on, is the only chapter in Genesis that exclusively deals with Isaac. In this chapter, he encounters, like his dad, he encounters some tests. A famine test, a fear test, a falsehood test, and a fatherhood test. And he does not do well in any of them. He does pretty poorly in all of them. First of all, the famine test. There was a famine that struck where he was living. So instead of trusting the Lord, he picks up his family and he moves to Gerar, which is in the land of the Philistines. That's still within Canaan. But he moves there instead of trusting the Lord. But we find out that he wasn't going to stay there. He was planning to move to, down to Egypt. Now, do you remember when Abraham sent out Eliezer to get a wife for Rebekah, that Eliezer had to make a vow that he would never take Isaac out of the land, out of the land of Canaan? He was, there's reasons for that. He was supposed to represent you know, not ever leaving the land and the land was supposed to be his. He didn't want to get him out of the land because like Jacob, he might be out there for 20 years. But here he is, Isaac himself, getting ready to leave the land to go to Egypt. So the Lord, for the very first time in Isaac's life, appears to him because he has to stop him. You can't go down to Egypt. He tells him, do not go down to Egypt. What verse is that? Two. Okay, don't. that's the Lord, the pre-incarnate Lord stopping him. And, and this is the first time that Isaac has met the Lord. Now you say, well, what about Mount Moriah? Well, that was, you know, the angel of the Lord, the Lord was in heaven, and he called down to Abraham, 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 don't slay your son. I don't think Isaac heard that. I think that was exclusively for Abraham. This is, this is the first time that Isaac has had a one-on-one with the Lord. And he listens to him. And it is at this time that the Lord Jesus Christ then gives him the covenant promises. You know, passes along to him the blessings of the covenant promises uh, that he had given to Abraham. At this point now, Abraham is dead. Did I say this already? Did I tell you that Abraham was alive, you know, the whole time? uh, uh, Did I say that already? That the whole time she was barren? And so that he would have been an encouragement to them to wait and and not do the mistake that he and Sarah had made, you know. But what I think is ironic, I don't think I did say this. Okay, what is ironic is that while he's encouraging them to wait on the Lord, you know, before they have babies, he's having one after another. And he's in his 140s and 150s. Don't you think that's a little lopsided? But now, here he's dead. Okay, by now he's dead. Well, sometime after Isaac settled, he settles in Gerar. He doesn't go to Egypt. He settles with his family in Gerar. The Philistine men inquire about fair to look upon Rebekah. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> and Isaac, fear, fearing that they'll kill him. Oh, no, here we go again. Like father, like son. Fears that they'll kill him if they find out she's his wife. And so what does he do? Full lie. Because she's not his sister. 
She's like his cousin second time removed or something like that. But she's not his sister. But he lies and he says, oh, she's not my wife. She's my beautiful sister. (laughs) And so he fails the falsehood test and the fear test because he was fearful for his own life. And he puts her in danger. Same thing all over again. And the one who actually catches him red handed in his lie is the king of the Philistines, Abimelech, who turns out to be a man of greater integrity at this point in time than Isaac. Because, you know, he says, why did you lie? You know, it's really a shame when a child of the king, a child of God, has to be rightly reprimanded by an unbeliever. That's not a very good witness for the Lord, is it? So Isaac didn't do too good on the famine test, the fear test, the falsehood test, and boy, He really did a bummer of a job on the fatherhood test. And uh, so this, this chapter starts out with failure in the family, beginning with the father, Isaac. And it ends with another family failure. And this one is by the eldest son, wouldn't you know it, Esau. Esau is 40 years old here. He decides he's going to get married. Okay, about time. Uh, But instead of just marrying one wife, he decides to marry two. Two is better than one. (laughs) He marries two, and they're Hittite women. And it tells us in verse 34 that they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. No chance of having godly grandchildren from Esau, right? I cannot even say, sadly, that he was unequally yoked. Because he wasn't a believer either. So he just did what his flesh wanted. And he married two unsaved pagan worshipers. That's further evidence of his spiritual lack of discernment. And, uh, you know, think about it. God's purposes for Israel. You know, he, he he was about building, creating a new nation. That would be a witness for him. To the rest of the world. A different nation. His, his people. His chosen nation. His purposes for that nation. Israel could never have been achieved. Through a man like Esau. Well that's all I'm going to say about Genesis 26. We're moving at rapid speed here. We're going to move on now to Genesis 27. This is a wretched. It would be nice if you could just put a big X in this chapter. Over Isaac's life. <laughs> Because this is a terrible chapter in Isaac's life. You see, in spite of Esau's indifference, total apathy toward his spiritual heritage, and in spite of God's revelation to Rebekah that the younger son would rule the elder son, which you know she shared with her husband, and in spite of Jacob's obvious spiritual superiority to Esau, And in spite of Jacob's Jacob's right, legal right, to the firstborn blessing, you know, via his legal transaction with his brother, they swapped. And then Esau vowed to that, you know, he swore to that transaction. In spite of all these things, Isaac the father was still determined to pass the covenant blessings to who? Esau. His worldly, unbelieving son. You think, I, I think, um, you know, Isaac, remember he was a mama's boy. We talked about that. 
Um, and he was a kind of a pensive, meditative kind of guy. Remember, he was out in the field when Rebecca arrived on the camels, and he was out there meditating. And he was more of a quiet-natured guy. And I think he admired in Esau. You know, Esau, probably if you had Esau and Jacob in this room, we would all gravitate toward Esau. He was the big burly, ho, ho, ho. You know, he was a man's man, macho, and covered with red hair and all that. (laughs) But the world loved Esau because he was of the world. And I think that attracted Isaac because it was sort of the opposite of him. And so he admired him for the wrong things. He favored him even knowing that he was headed in the wrong direction. And yet he rewarded him with his love and his praise. Um, You know, praise for his abilities as a cunning hunter. When what should he have been doing? He should have been, with every ounce of his energy, he should have been trying to direct his son toward the Lord. You know, you can't always do that, but you give every ounce of your energy. Our children have free will, But still, we do all we can, right? That's what he should have been doing. But he favored the ungodly son and neglected, really, the one whose heart was set on on spiritual things. So he plans to disobey God's pregnancy prophecy about the elder serving the younger. So he really, you know, Isaac failed with an F, the fatherhood test, when it came to both sons, he failed. And if that sounds unfair to him, chapter 27 confirms it. First of all, Isaac never should have allowed the firstborn birthright and blessing situation to continue for 75 years. He should have taken care of that when they were little guys and could understand. He should have said, the Lord God spoke to your mother when you were in the womb, and here's the way it is. It's his will that Jacob will be the one to carry on the messianic lineage. He, you know, even though he was second born, he will will get the birthright. And if they grew up understanding that all their lives, they wouldn't have had to do all their little bargaining and swapping and anger and hatred and all that. He should have taken care of that. The Lord had revealed his will in, in the matter, even before they were born. So it was the father's neglect, Isaac's neglect, to handle the problem early, and his continual favoritism of Esau that caused the situation to just totally get out of hand. The father is important in the family, isn't he? Well, in verses 1 and 5 of chapter 27, we have a contrast. There's a lot of contrast in this chapter, and there's a lot of uh, about the senses, you know, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, feeling, a lot in this chapter that is developed more in the book. But we do see a contrast right away between the dim vision of Isaac. And not only is he physically blind, this guy right now is is spiritually blind. I mean, he's saved, but he's in a spiritual stupor. (laughs) Uh, So we have a contrast between his dim vision and Rebecca's acute hearing. You know, it definitely was an ancient custom for women to eavesdrop in that day. I mean, here we have it again. Proof again. (laughs) That's how they, yeah, that's how they found out. They were second class citizens. So they always had to be eavesdropping. You think that goes on today? Oh, no. So she sees Esau going into Isaac's tent, 
and she's probably been suspecting this. Isaac is really feeble. He's 100, mm, is he 137 at this time? I have that number in my head, I'm not sure, but he's old. And he thinks death is at hand, and so he decides now's the time. I've got to pass on the blessing to Esau before I die. But I sure can't let Rebecca know about it. <laughs> so it's, she's been watching. She's been thinking, this is going to happen. I know this is going to happen. And sure enough, Esau goes into the tent. And where is she? It says that she heard. Actually, in Hebrew, it's she was listening. <laughs> and she hears Isaac in the tent tell Esau to prepare some savory venison for him. Go out and, you know, get some deer meat. Cook it the way I love it and then bring it to me and I will bless you. I will give you. Now, normally there was a ceremony when you passed on the firstborn birthright and blessing that the whole family was included. So this was wrong. He was he was he was doing this in secrecy. He didn't want Rebecca to know about it and he didn't want Jacob to know about it. So he was wrong, but Rebecca was also wrong in what she next did. She had a plan to deceive her blind husband into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. Do you think she had this plan pre-planned? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Because she immediately calls Jacob to her, tells her everything she heard. Your daddy's getting ready to bless your, your, uh, your brother. And um, she, she must have suspected this was coming because she knew what to do. She tells him immediately, and she says, obey my voice. This woman is, I mean, she's, and you know how old Jacob is at this time, Anissa? 75. And his mom is still saying, obey my voice. <laughs> Go out to the, the herds and get me two kids, you know, two goats. And uh, she, she prepared them so that they would taste like savory venison. Now, here's why she wrote this, uh, the foolhardy cookbook for fake food. How you make goat taste like venison, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I never have eaten goat. Now, some people say it tastes good, but uh, I'll have to be starving before I find out. But anyway, she, it sounds like she had tricked Isa, uh, Isaac. Maybe she got him ready for this, you know, been feeding him this for years so that when he actually <laughs> ate it, he thought it was venison. I don't know. But she does make it taste like venison. And then she dresses Jacob in Esau's clothing so that he'll smell like Esau, <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> and, and then, I mean, she's so clever that she thinks, well, he might reach out and feel you because your voice isn't exactly Esau's voice. So she puts the skin of the goats on his hands and wrists and around his neck so that he feels hairy. <laughs> she's one clever. I mean, she, this woman can water camels. She can cook goat to taste like deer. I, she, Wow. She's an amazing person. Uh, now, Isaac couldn't see, right? He's blind. He can't see. But his other senses are operating, but I don't think they're operating too well, if you ask me. If he thinks, you know, it's taste buds, if he thinks goat is venison, hearing, he, he comes to believe that Jacob's voice is actually Esau's voice. Now, how can you get that mixed up with your children? Huh? I think he's seen. 
<laughs> no, he isn't. Um, and then, and then his fe- even his feeling. I mean, he, he thinks that goat fur is hair? hair. Yeah, I don't know. Something. Maybe he was just having a bad day. <laughs> now, so with great, you know, Rebecca gets the food ready and she dresses Jacob up, and then with great trepidation. He's really fearful. And, and, you know, he's like, Mom, what if this goes wrong and I have to deceive my dad? And every, she said, the curse be upon me if, if you get discovered. And that really happened. Poor Rebecca. The curse was upon her. Anyway, he's trepidating and he goes in before his father and he's dressed. He's dressed in phony fur, smelling like fabricated forest and carrying fake food. <laughs> And it was by way of four falsehoods that he successfully deceived his father. He lied to his father four times. It's terrible. One of your homework questions are what? Twice he says, I am Esau. Once he includes the Lord, because he said, how did you get here so quickly? And he said, well, the Lord provided for me. So he brought the Lord into his lie. That's not good. But four times he lies to his father. The whole thing is, you know, deception and everything. Uh, But he does receive the firstborn blessing. Genesis 27 is a great chapter to teach if you're teaching on the dangers of tampering with God's will. The sin of the father had a snowball effect because every one of the other three members of this family followed in his footsteps and also attempted to tamper with God's will. It's It's a sad chapter. Isaac tampered with God's will by trying to bypass it, you know, to change it. Rebecca, who was the mastermind behind this counter conspiracy, she actually offended God's sovereignty because her plan sent the message that God was not powerful enough to fulfill his own prophecy, right? And then she also manipulated her son to get him to lie and deceive his own dad. And then Jacob tampered with God's will by going along with his mother's deceptive plan. He didn't have to submit to his mother at 75. And even if he was 15, he didn't have to submit to her when she's telling him to lie and deceive his dad. You know, you don't have to obey your parents if they tell you to do something bad. So uh, here, here it is. It's never right to do wrong to do right, is it? And then Esau, Esau's primary sin was his indifference to God's will. He, and also, he was secretly conspiring with his father to not honor that birthright exchange he had had with his brother earlier. He was going to bypass that whole thing, even though he made a vow to it. He was just going to ignore it. And then, of course, his great sin, too, is that after, after everything is over, he wants to kill his brother. He wants to murder him. But anyway... Jacob gets the blessing, and with a great sigh of relief, he must have scrambled away from his father's tent just as as soon as it was finished. And it says that he was scarce out of there before Esau came. But Jacob's glad to have the trickery behind him. Um, And then here comes Esau with the real deal. He's got the real savory venison. Now, Isaac. Isaac was probably also greatly relieved of tension because he had gotten away with this. Rebecca hadn't found out about it. <laughs> Yay! He knew Re- Rebecca would have done something, right? So he out-tricked his wife. 
And uh, it must have been okay because God hadn't intervened. So maybe Rebecca didn't really hear right long ago when she was pregnant. You know, I got away with this. And so he's got a full tummy. He just ate fake goat meat, you know, fake venison. (laughs) And he's old. And so he's ready to take a nap. And he's probably just about ready to doze off. And all of a sudden the tent flap opens up and... No doubt about it. It's the voice of Esau. And he says, let my father arise and eat of his son's venison that thy soul may bless me. Oh, no. (laughs) You can hear panic in Isaac's next question. Who art thou? And then with the fearfully, I think he's beginning to suspect what the answer is going to be. Here comes the answer. I am thy son, thy firstborn, Esau. And then what do we read? Look at verse 33. It says that I, and in, the, in the Hebrew, it's, oh my goodness. It's like Isaac is having an earthquake inside of his body from head to toe. Isaac trembled very, very exceedingly. His old frame, and here I do have 130, he was 137. His frame shook from head to toe, and in his quivering voice, you can almost hear in this next question, you can almost hear his confusion, his anguish, and then dawning realization as everything becomes clear to him. He asks, he says, who? Where? Where is he that hath taken venison and brought it me? And I have eaten of all before you came in, and I have blessed him. Now, you might think that Isaac's shaking, his inner earthquake, was over anger and fury at what he realizes has just happened. That Jacob has deceived him. His own son lied to him. This is dawning on him. And what else do you think dawns on him? Uh Uh-oh, mama was involved. (laughs) I never should have married that beautiful woman. This is all beginning to occur to him. And so you think his shaking is anger, okay? Or you might think that his shaking is all about his anguish and his heartache for Esau. Oh, no, what have I done? Poor Esau. But guess what? It's neither. His quaking, his trembling is conviction awakening. Yay! Finally, finally. I mean, this is our hero. This is Isaac who laid down his life on Moriah willingly. He had been too long in a state of spiritual slumber and now realizing, realizing That it was really God who had overruled. Isaac almost to himself says this. He says, yea, and he shall be blessed. (laughs) Who's he? Jacob. Do you know? And this, this just blows me away. But this statement... The fact that he would not change the blessing. We're going to see Esau tries to get him to change it. It's not too late. Renege on it and give it to me. But he's 
firm and adamant no. He understands God overruled him. He says he will be blessed. This is what got Isaac into the hall of faith. Hebrews 11.20. It's this. Not that he laid his life down on Mount Moriah. Now wouldn't you think that would be what got him into the hall of faith? No. It's this. It's amazing. I wonder why. But with spirit-led conviction, he was declaring that the blessing on Jacob would remain. So Isaac again begins to shine. Yay, I'm so glad for that. You see, this is true repentance. This is true repentance. Because he assented, ascended, ascended, <laughs> he assented, he agreed, he surrendered to God's will, even though it went against his own will. Get it? That's what got him in the hall of faith. Well, Esau's stunned response to his father's intense shaking and his words about someone else having received the blessing in his place, his reaction is a great and exceeding bitter cry. I don't know what verse that is. I didn't write it down. Huh? 34. And the Hebrew word for cry is scream. I don't want to do it. I'll break the microphone, break your ears, but no, I won't. I won't. Uh, yeah, you're right in front of the speaker, <laughs> but he screams. Hebrews twelve seventeen then says he desperately tried to change his father's mind and he did it carefully with many tears. Hmm. But Esau didn't Esau didn't understand God, did he? Did, did he understand God? No, doesn't even care to. So he could not even begin to understand that his father could not change the blessing even if he wanted to. God had already ruled. He's sovereign. Thing is now, Isaac doesn't want to. But Esau couldn't understand that. Um, so all Isaac could tell him, he's now figured it out. He tells him exactly what happened. He says in verse 35, Thy brother came with subtlety and hath taken away thy blessing. And now, fully realizing what had happened, Esau unleashes his resentment toward his brother. First thing he does, and this shows us this, these tears are not repentant tears. Because when you are genuinely repentant, your tears are over your own sin, aren't they? Not somebody else's. The first thing he does is blame his brother. He doesn't confess his sin. He says, well, my brother is rightly named because now he has supplanted me. You know, he's deceived me. He's tricked me twice. First time he took away my birthright. And now this is verse 36. Now he took away my blessing. You know what? Neither one of those accusations is true. In the beans for the birthright bargain. Esau was not deceived, was he? He wasn't. He willingly made that exchange. He willingly did it. So he had no right at all to blame Jacob for his own lack of concern for his birthright. He despised his birthright. Furthermore, the blessing that Jacob had just gotten was actually rightfully Jacob's. 
By God's decree, it was rightfully Jacob's. It was Esau who was the real supplanter in this whole situation. And guess who really was the cunning hunter? Jacob. <laughs> I mean, really, they switch roles here. Uh, but he, Esau is really the one who's the supplanter because he was going to take the blessing from Jacob. He wasn't robbed of the blessing because it was never his to begin with. You following me? The second thing he did, first he blames his brother. The second thing he does is beg. And this is just pitiful. He relentlessly begs his father. He says, hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, oh, my father. And again, it says he lifted up his voice and he wept. And that's literal loud sobs of despair. And now this must have been another awakening opening of Isaac's eyes because I think he finally awakes to see his son for who he really is. You know, his masculine burly son is screaming like a woman, crying like a baby and pitifully begging him to change his mind. Not quite so much the macho man he thought he was, right? So it seems like he, he finally sees Esau for who he is. He's selfish, he's carnal, he's immature. But the Spirit did give Isaac a word of blessing to speak to Esau, and it really turns out not to be much of a blessing. Three parts to it. It's about soil, sword, and uh, servitude, and none of them are good. Well, he promises infertile land and moisture for his land, but he doesn't care about farming, so that really, you know, that part of it, he really didn't care about. There could be some double meaning in there because the fatness of the land that he's to inherit his descendants. That word fatness can also mean oil. Oil. Hmm. Then he says, you'll live by the sword. Now that's not good news because people who live by the sword are usually ungodly. And that's also telling him that he's, he and his descendants aren't going to have a whole lot of peace. And they haven't. And he really fulfills his pop, uh, prophecy right away because as soon as this is over, he wants to kill his brother. And how do you think he was going to kill his brother? With a sword. His plan is to kill his brother as soon as his father dies. <laughs> Guess what? His father lived another 45 years. <laughs> but the worst came last. And the worst part of the blessing was that um, he would serve Jacob. Now, when he heard that, his blood was really boiling, and that's when he says, I'm going to, he comforts himself. It's really sad when someone comforts themselves by thoughts of murdering someone else. We have a lot of that going on in the world today. But that's how he comforted himself throughout this. He thought, as soon as daddy dies, Jacob is dead. Jacob is dead. Genesis 36, I'm almost done, but the, Genesis 36, we won't even talk about it when we get there, but it's the history of the Edomites the descendants of Esau, and um, they were all pagan worshipers. They, they dominated uh, the land of Edom that had the highway running through it called the King's Highway. And when Israel was coming out of their exodus from Egypt, they wanted to use that highway to enter in the promised land. And the Edomites came out in full force and would not let them. They said, no, 
You can't pass this way. So the poor Israelites, I mean, they'd been wandering for 40 years, and then they had to take this giant detour like I almost had to do today. Not quite that giant, but... And they even offered to pay. It was like a toll road. You know, we'll pay you. Please let us use it. And they wouldn't. But Deuteronomy, God said in Deuteronomy to the Israelites, you are not allowed to hate your brothers. So the Israelites would sin if they hated the Edomites. But the Edomites didn't go by God's laws. And they've always hated the Jacobites. They've always hated Israel. And there were some horrible descendants of Esau. There was one guy named Doeg, D-O-E-G. Read about him in 1 Samuel horrible person horrible 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 and then haman in esther was a descendant of esau didn't he want to pair you know just like today get rid of all the jews and ezekiel tells how they helped nebuchadnezzar out when nebuchadnezzar came over and took judah captive and all the jewish people captive the edomites helped him If some of the Jews tried to escape from Jerusalem, the Edomites would catch them and turn them into Nebuchadnezzar. Why did they want to? They were so happy when the Jews left the land because now we got it. We get our birthright back. They were also happy when Rome scattered the Jews because now we get the land. We get our birthright back. You see how this is going on and on and on? Well, Obadiah, Obadiah is one little chapter. It's all about the Edomites and their future. God is very mad at them. They gloat over, it says, they gloat over the fact that they have occupied his mountain, his holy mountain. Who has possession of the Mount Zion, where the Dome of the Rock is today? Palestinians, they won't even let Jews enter there to pray. And it says, you're gloating over all that. But in the day of the Lord, he says, in the day of the Lord... I will take my vengeance on Esau. And it says there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau. Obadiah 1.18. So make sure you take the right side in this Middle East situation. All right. Well, after that, you know, she tells Jacob, your brother's going to kill you. Rebecca doesn't go to her husband and tell her that. I don't know why Rebecca doesn't go to her husband. She must not trust him. But she doesn't tell him that Esau wants to kill Jacob. Instead, she goes in before Isaac, her husband, and says, if I have one more daughter-in-law like those two Hittite women, it's just going to do me in. It's going to do me in. So we need to send Jacob. After all, he is 75 years old. We need to send him to my people in Haran so he can get himself a godly wife. (laughs) And she says, we'll just send him for a few days. This is deception again, isn't it? Sad thing is, she said, the curse be upon me. She never saw her beloved Jacob again because he met his match in Uncle Laban, didn't he? he Oh, yes, he did. He was up there, not seven years, not 14 years. He was up there for 20 years before he returned. 